Hello, writers, and welcome to another episode of Right Minded. Today, we're talking with Margaret Verbal, who has recently written a new novel, When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky. The novel is about Two Feathers, a young Cherokee horse diver on loan to the Glendale Park Zoo from a Wild West show. A horse diver, just in case you don't know, I didn't know, uh, is literally a person who rides a horse off of a platform or ledge into a body of water. And that was, uh, believe it or not, a popular entertainment uh, 100 years or so ago. And the novel was inspired because Margaret grew up in the neighborhood that was built over the grounds of that old Glendale Park Zoo in Nashville. So her childhood was spent literally playing amidst the remnants of the zoo and hearing stories about the animals in the zoo. And in fact, when she and her friends were digging a hole in a yard one day, they literally unearthed a huge shoulder bone that might have been a hippopotamus's. There are many things, Brooke, that interest me about Margaret Verbal's novels, which are about a different kind of unearthing, you know, unearthing the painful history of the Cherokee tribe of which she is a a member. And as a writer, I'm also interested in how she uses historical research. Sometimes we view the research for a book as a way to, you know, just get the facts right. Uh, But, but in reading about how Margaret uses research, she, she not only is interested in digging up facts, but in using research to guide her story, to use research as an inspirational tool in, in essence. So research helped her stitch this story together to mix facts with her own imagination and emotional reality to create a story out of it all as if you know the story is kind of like a literal collage that she stitches together and it it struck me that this might be a storytelling method that's not just for writing fiction but that it must work for memoir as well you know that research is a type of writing prompt in other words a type of story instigator so i was wondering if you had thoughts about that brooke Yeah, I love it. Um, I'm just going to pick up on what you're sharing here then the use of that word collage, because I'm sure we've shared this on a previous podcast, but um, Sue Monk Kidd, who's been a guest, famously had some inspiration for The Secret Lives of Bees from a soul collage card that she did. And a soul collage, for those who are not familiar um, with it, is this very intuitive process of taking images, usually from magazines, calendars, whatever, and then placing them, you know, in whatever organization uh, is intuitively calling to you onto a stop card that's actually fairly small. And you're not meant to think about it, you know, just let the spirit carry you, so to speak. And then after it's done, you examine the card and you make meaning from it. And so sometimes, of course, the meaning changes over time. And this apparently, you know, was an inspiration for Sue Monk Kid on that story. Um, and my mom is pretty into this process. So I've actually done a lot of soul collages over the years. I think they're very powerful portals into words, actually, and that they can be very helpful tools for writers. So I loved it when I heard that story about Sue Monk Kid. You know, and images in general can be a way to think very differently about story, certainly. And um, it's like a separate but complex complementary channel. And so I was just thinking of all this as you were talking, you know, that it's like research can also just be remembering that there are all these different ways into story and the way that one thing leads to another images and photos, music, smells, sensations, and and that maybe all this is like a form of experiential research. I love that experiential research. And I want to do a soul collage now. <laughs> it's interesting because I don't hear fiction writers talk a lot about research in that that personal level of inspiring stories. But since my 
my father died. I've, I've tried to find books about growing up in Iowa during the depression as he did simply as a way to imagine his life. You know, he told some stories about growing up, so it's not like I'm working with nothing, but, but, um, I don't have much. And I like collecting these details of that period from other writers. And I, I literally, you know, do collect them and type them up in a word doc and, for no specific purpose, just as a way to connect uh, with his life and perhaps make my own story someday. And, you know, I think like it, it is as if I'm both creating or recreating the story of his life and thinking about ways to dramatize it in stories through this research. And I just want to say that I think I think it's important to do writing like this that's not so directly attached to a purpose or a specific story, kind of like the soul collage, I think, because sometimes it's in wandering about in writing that a story actually appears. And and that's what happened to Margaret, in fact, when she happened upon a tombstone with the name Cherokee American Rogers on it one day when she was visiting the cemetery where her grandfather was buried. And the, the name captivated her, and she told her grandmother about it, and it turned out Cherokee America Rogers played a large role in their family history. And then hearing the story as she tells us all about it in, a, in our interview led to essentially 20 years of research before it became a novel. And I, I suppose that you, you called this experiential research, which I which I liked, Brooke. Um, I'm thinking there needs to be a, a term for it. Um, you know, research that literally grabs you and takes you with it as if it's a type of destiny. And I, I think that that's the spirit writers have to be attuned to because sometimes we don't find our stories. Sometimes they find us. And Brooke, when you mentioned Sue Monk Kidd, I was thinking we've had so many authors on the show who have used research to play vital roles in their stories, you know, whether it's Danny Shapiro's Inheritance, which is a kind of a genetic detective story, um, the in-depth research that forms the backbone of, of Lisa C.'s historical novels, or, or Christine Baker Klein, who used her research to write a 50-page single-spaced timeline for one novel. So I'm curious, do you have a favorite research story or technique to share that might make research a little bit more actionable to our listeners? I mean, I really love this topic. And when you're, you know, we're talking about the possibility of calling this experiential research, which I definitely also like, um, you know, it's also like soul research, you know, what's coming up for me is like, we're talking about all of this feeling, you know, sensations that sort of lead us in a soul way to stories, right? Like what mm -hmm. led Margaret to be intrigued by this person's gravestone and then say something to her mother. I mean, it's all very serendipitous in a way. And there, I, I just sometimes think there's really reasons for that, you know, that we have these stories that live inside of us. And sometimes we know they're there and sometimes we don't. And, you know, and then when we access them, that can open up a whole new realm of possibility and connection. And, and it's so powerful. It was honestly like giving me goosebumps a little bit. But to answer your question, in memoir, some of the techniques uh, are ones that I sort of mentioned, like looking at photos, listening to music from the era in which you're writing, uh, going to your hometown and walking the streets, uh -huh. you know, and even if you can't do that in person, Google Earth is such a valuable tool, you can literally walk the streets of where you grew up. I mean, it might look very different, but putting yourself in that space is super powerful. Uh, you know, one of the truly haunting stories of my own childhood that was actually evoked just from listening to you talk about Margaret 
uh, is the story of Jennifer Zell, who was a little girl who died on my street before I ever lived there. And from what I heard from older neighbors, and, and I'm talking teenage neighbors when I was a little kid, was that she was decapitated by an airplane. Of course, these teens wanted to be very gory with all the little kids and scared the crap out of us. Um, but we lived off of a street called Camino del Avian, or which means street of the airplane. Uh, though by the time I moved there with my family in 1980, that airport was long gone. But Jennifer had this little memorial stone under a tree at the park across the street from my house. And so that was just like part of my life, you know, that I would look at it and spend time in front of it. And I was very intrigued by it. Uh, and even though I only know part of her story, and honestly, it's actually only hearsay from those neighbors, it's this story that lives very cellularly inside of me. I have actually written about it. I've written a short story. Um, and Jennifer died before I was even born, but I've carried her with me. You know, so I'm just thinking about this because I'm thinking like, someday I'm, I would like to do some real research into what happened to her and then, you know, maybe include it at some point if I write my own memoir. Um, and, but I think that this is kind of what we're talking about, you know, like the kind of research that drives us that's maybe in our bones or more soul centered. Um, and if I were to write a longer piece about Jennifer, I would certainly start by going to that stone and spending some time back on my old street and in that park. I love that uh, tip to to for people to walk the streets of, of where they grew up or a place that's significant to them uh, as a way to research things. Because I think sometimes we think of research as only being about going to the library and looking through books and old newspapers. And 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 the way you talk about that story um, and the way it, it haunts or kind of hovers over your life, you know, I think we we probably all have stories like that, right? That have been playing in our imagination for years. You're just reminding me of, of several in my childhood that I, I now want to go back and research because I'm not even sure how true they are, you know, uh, because they, they take on their own mythology over time. And I haven't done a lot of excavation of my past in terms of writing about it, but I did start a novel that took place in the 80s a while back, several years ago, actually. But 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 one of the surprises of it was how much I actually needed to research an era that I actually experienced or actually lived in. You know, like I think the rule here is that even though you lived it, you don't necessarily know it. And so um, especially when it's like as far back as the 80s or, or, or you know, I think I think I started to think that even if I wrote a story that took place yesterday, it might benefit from some research, you know, uh, totally. depending, <laughs> de depending on what it included. Um, and I think that that whether it's experiential research or actual factual research, I think it's, it's both a good thing to keep in mind. I'll leave with just like two of my re rules of research and, and that's to research what I call just enough. And, and that means that so that you don't have to feel like you have to include everything in your research. I think this is a hazard of research is that you can just accumulate it and you can get so attached to it that you want to fit it all into the story. But sometimes the research doesn't really fulfill like the dramatic purpose that you're aiming for. And then and the other thing is, is what we've been talking about is that research is not just for the facts, but for ambience and character as well, because your story, you know, will be more important than anything else. Yeah. That's all so helpful to be thinking about. And I, I think we're on to something with this range of research from the soul experiential stuff all the way to researching facts in places like libraries and firsthand accounts. You know, it's a continuum. Uh, and the best part about all of this is what I said earlier, which is just that there are so many ways in. So trust your heart, trust your soul, and trust us to bring you today's <laughs> guest, <laughs> Margaret Verbal. And just a moment after this short little ditty.
Welcome back, everybody. I am excited to introduce our guest today, Margaret Verbal. Margaret is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and a member of a large Cherokee family that has, through generations, made many contributions to the tribe's history and survival. Although many of her family have remained in Oklahoma to this day, and some still own and farm the land on which her books are set, Margaret was raised in Nashville, Tennessee, and currently lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Margaret's first novel, Maud's Line, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2016. Her second novel, Cherokee America, was listed by the New York Times as one of the 100 notable books of the year for 2019 and won the Spur Award for Best Western. It is set in 1875 in the Arkansas River Bottoms of the old Cherokee Nation West and is a prequel to Maud's Line. And she just recently published When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Grant. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I want to talk about your your new book, but before we do so, I'd love to talk a bit about an essay you published in LitHub about how in visiting your grandfather's grave, you stumbled upon a gravesite for Cherokee America Rogers, and you were taken by that name and mentioned her to your grandmother, who happened to know her, and in fact, Cherokee America played a large role in your family's history. And that day set in motion a 20-year journey to writing your novel, Cherokee America, and I'm intrigued by everything about this story. It's such a wonderful story. You know, the moment of inspiration, the serendipity of your grandmother's connection, the research, and then, you know, how the story went through such a long journey. So I was wondering if you could tell us about that journey. Well, uh, the journey included a whole uh, range of different threads, I think, or different paths I had to go down. Uh, one path was I had to read a lot of Cherokee history. And I was really trying to figure out when I started doing that who this woman was. Uh, my grandmother referred to her as Aunt Check. Hmm. And uh, we are kin to one of the two large Rogers families in the Cherokee Nation. And because her allotment was next to our allotments, I assumed that she was literally my uh, grandmother's aunt and, and thus one of my aunts. Uh, but as I got to researching, uh, one of the things I had to figure out, and this was before the Internet and um, Ancestry.com, I had to separate those two Rogers families, which was uh, hard to do because uh, they both turn up in Cherokee history and they had a tendency to name their children the same thing, the same first names. So it was very difficult to find out who she was to begin with. And then somewhere in on that path, I discovered that she uh, had married this. Of course, this was a married name, but the Rogers that she married was not from either one of these families, but that she was from the Lowry family, which is one of the most prestigious families in the Cherokee Nation. They produced chiefs and statesmen, and Sequoia was a member of that family on uh, his mother's side. So. Um, I, I traced her through through that. And in the meantime, I, I learned an awful lot of Cherokee history. And uh, it, it really, I was really absorbed by it. And I started trying to write this book about her and about the fact that she had taken in my great-grandfather and his brother when they came as orphans of, from the Civil War to the uh, Fort Gibson Bottoms. 
and uh, her act of taking them in and really giving them a life because they were orphaned by both parents during that war really changed the course of uh, their lives and thus led to indirectly to my life. So, so I was interested in all of that and um, began to write a novel about it. And um, I did write that novel, and I tried to sell it to New York, and um, I couldn't get any takers. Hmm. Uh, it was turned down, I think it was turned down 94 different times. Wow. And I kept trying. And um, persistence, of course, is crucial in the in the life of a writer. So... What I did ultimately was I wrote Maud's line as a way to get Cherokee America published because I went to a writing workshop where Nancy Zafras was my teacher at the Kenyon writing workshop and she read the manuscript and she said, This is this is a wonderful novel. Why can't you sell it? And I said, Well, I don't know. Hmm. And she said, Well, go home and write a novel about one character and follow that character throughout the entire novel. She said, that's what New York will bite on. So I did that, and I wrote Maud's line in about 14 months, and I sent it off, and um, I got an agent on the first try, and um, she sold it, and because she was able to sell it and because it was finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, I feel sure that had something to do with it, then, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, New York was interested in Cherokee America. Wow, that is fascinating and such insight into the publishing industry at the same time. Um, I, I wanted to read a line from that same Lit Hub essay uh, just to give some context about your purpose as an author. Uh, you wrote, one of the greatest gifts of writing is being able to bring the dead back to life, to give new substance to their existence, to feel them near talking, prodding and laughing, to introduce them to others. I'm not as tough as I was when I was younger. The power of the act of creation brings tears to my eyes fairly often. So beautiful. Uh, would you say that one of your purposes as an author is to bring the dead back to life? Oh yes, very definitely. Um, one of the one of the great pleasures of, of my existence is to get up every morning and sit down at a computer and write often about people that um, I either knew their grandchildren or their great grandchildren. Not only knew them but loved them. And so it's, uh, you know, I, I, I can feel these people in me. And, of course, um, I think part of being a, a Cherokee or, or probably a member of any uh, tribe is that, that you feel a connection to, the, to your ancestors. And that keeps that connection alive and very much a part of my world uh, every single day of my life. Well, Mario, you bring the dead back to life in many ways in your new novel, you know, whose setting has such a layered history. Uh, and one of those layers is that you were raised in a neighborhood built on the grounds of the Glendale Park Zoo in Nashville. And I read how the zoo played in your imagination as a child and how you literally dug up what might have been a hippopotamus bone as a child. 
and it it made me think about how you know we 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 live on land whose stories are buried and unrecognized so i was i was curious if you could tell us more about why you chose to write about the glendale park zoo and and why uh, why the year 1926 well let me let me answer, answer the year why the year 1926 first and and the reason for that was that um I went through, in preparation for writing that novel, I went through the archives of the Nashville Tennessean, and I was looking for that hippopotamus, (laughs) and I only found one mention of of a hippopotamus at the Glendale Park Zoo, and it was in 1926. And so that's the reason I picked 1926 as a year to set that novel, even though that that park zoo lasted for about 50 years. Um, And and 1926 was uh, easy for me in some respects because Mars Line is is set in 1928. So I already had all of that background. I I was lucky that Hippopotamus was there in 1926 and not 1936. Interesting. I'm sorry, the first part of your question, was it about how I came to write uh, about the Glendale Park Zoo? Was that the direction you were going in, Grant? Exactly. I was intrigued by the Glendale Park Zoo, and I was also just intrigued by the character Two Feathers and the whole notion of horse divers, right? That's what she was called, a horse diver? Right. right. She was a horse driver. And I understand there's a new book out about horse diving. Uh, somebody sent me a, a, a email about that just about a couple of days ago. But there are already a couple of books out about it that are old books and I think one movie was made about it. This was a this was an entertainment that that people loved from like the eighteen nineties to about the nineteen fifties, I think. As strange as it seems to us today. Uh, there was something thrilling about somebody's up on a horse on top of a platform and then diving in uh to a to a pond or a a lake or a pool of some kind. And of course it was dangerous. Uh, it was dangerous activity. And I found in the research that I did in the Tennessean archives, uh, I found that one of those horse diving pools had been there in the Glendale Park, which is something I did not know. And uh, it had actually collapsed hmm. into a cave. Wow. And that there was a, a diver there named Two Feathers. Now, I suspect that um, that diver was, you know, a white person with some feathers on their head. But uh, I thought it was a good name, and so I used it. <laughs> I love that, Margaret. Um, you, know, you do all this research, I mean, like you're talking about, and um, obviously that helps to pull the story together along with your imagination. Could you talk about the interplay between story idea and research? Because it sounds like the research does provide the narrative thread or at least, you know, and maybe even has its own creative role. Um, so I just thought, given all you've said about research, but clearly things are also just kind of coming up serendipitously as well. Well, in terms of the research, and that's a really good question, Two Feathers is more tightly tied to the research than Maud's Line is, or even as Cherokee America is. Um, there, was, there are certain plot points um, or characters in Two Feathers uh, that I found out about in the research and then just trans- 
ported them into the book and had them carry the plot. For instance, that that buffalo, uh, Adam, that was a real buffalo. That buffalo was there. He really had been um, Buffalo Bill's buffalo, and he really had been at the 101 Ranch out in Oklahoma, which is where I have Two Feathers originating from. So... You know, that that is a very sort of a luscious kind of thing when you run across it in research, and it just makes you want to work with it in terms of your plot. And there are other things about that, uh, the research that I discovered, um, that I used in the same way uh, in that particular book. Uh, like I say, less so in Cherokee America, and not much at all in Maud's line um, 1927 in American history is very famous. And there have been several books written on what happened, the kinds of things that happened in 1927, like Lindbergh flying across the ocean and like the Great Flood. And I read those books, but I knew the topography and the characters and the culture of Maud's line so well that I didn't have to read anything about it. I, I knew those people. Uh, Maud's aunt Nan and her uncle Rod, those are my grandparents. Her her little cousin, Rini, that's my mother. So, uh, you know, I, I know every every step of that section line and have been down it a thousand times. So I didn't have to do much research about that. Interesting. So the the research with Maud's line was really a research of your memory. Is that right? Well, I didn't, I, I didn't really have to remember particular instances because what goes on in Maud's line is fiction, but um, I know those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, you know, they are inside my head. They are part of me. So all I do is just call them up and talk to them mm-hmm. uh, in my head. And, um, you know, again, that's a way that I can I can communicate with the dead, mm-hmm. and it's uh, you know it's very satisfying. That's interesting. Well, when you mentioned reading Lindbergh's uh, story, it made me think that that certain you know certain stories are just more available, right? They're big history books that have been written about them, or biographies, and that's that's one type of research. And I guess maybe you're kind of lucky if you're writing a novel that allows for that. But I'm thinking like with the story of Two Feathers, that's a, a more kind of hidden history and even the layers layers of that story. So I'm curious, are there any research techniques that, that you use that helped you uncover those stories? Well, I did use, in that case, the archives of the Nashville Tennessean because I had read or tried to find books on the Glendale Park Zoo, and the only one that I could find was a book written for children. But uh, I, I knew there had to be information somewhere on it, so I went I went to the newspaper to find that out. And, and it was such a part of Nashville life that it, there was something about it in the newspaper, an advertisement or an article nearly every day. And I can remember being a child and and the parents of uh, my friends talking about, you know, oh, how wonderful the Glendale Park Zoo had been and how their parents had met there and, and, and you know, romanced there. And, you know, it just has almost a kind of mythology about it in 
Nashville, or it did when I was growing up, and everybody was nostalgic for it. So, uh, of course, I remember that, and um, it, it evidently, I never heard anybody say anything bad about it. Uh, it, it was a time, it was a place of good times for everybody. Well, in your author's note to When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky, you write about how your mother was a fourth grade teacher and the fourth grade was the grade when children in Nashville were first introduced to its history, which included a lot of stories of murderous Indians who were Cherokees attacking poor, innocent white people for no apparent reason. Uh, And you write about how that infuriated you on your own behalf and on your mother's who had to stay quiet Uh, at that time, because that's just what people did then. So we were wondering how your novel has been received in Nashville. And have you been pleased with your novels reception, you know, all the novels in general, uh, since you are presenting a side of history that wasn't taught in many, if any, classrooms? Well, mostly on in terms of two feathers, uh, the people I've heard from in Nashville, are people I've known all of my life and people I went to school with at the Glendale Elementary School. And, of course, they're all just delighted. You know, there may be people in Nashville that are not really happy about that, but um, everybody that has contacted me is. And I, I think that one of the things I tried to do in that book is to feed people an alternative story about their history that they can take in and not feel defensive about and yet have it enlarge them. I think that one of the things that that we do too often in trying to get people to listen or read history that is not what they were brought up with is that we, we tell it to them in a way that makes them defensive. And so one of the things I was very purposely trying to do in that book was to tell it in a way that people could embrace it and and not put up barriers about it. And so, for instance, the character of Little Elk, I try to make Little Elk really endearing. And I understand that I have. People just love Little Elk. And... You know, he's he's the other side of that history. And they like him so much, I don't think that they really understand. They, 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 they don't feel defensive about it. And that was that was my intention. Well, Margaret, in closing, uh, I'm going to switch the topic a little bit because I just I, re- I read that you've been faithfully tracking your reading since you were 15. I was so impressed by that. And and so you know that you read, among other books, Rebecca and To Kill a Mockingbird and The Bridge of San Luis Rey. And, you know, I, I don't track my books. I wish I did so that I knew what I read when I was 15. But I wondered, did you have a good reading year last year? And um, do you know how many novels or books you read? And it'd be great if you could could share uh, a favorite book or two. Well, I, I did have a pretty good reading year last year. Uh, because, you know, I was inside a lot, as we all were. I can't think here, you've put me on the spot, and I can't think of anything that I would point out in particular that just, you know, rang my chimes. Uh, Although I did like Ann Patchett's uh, The Dutch House a lot. I read it last year. And as I'm thinking here, I liked uh, Louise Eldrick's uh, 
the sentence, which I read in an arc form, uh, because it um, I, uh, interviewed her for Penn Faulkner. Mm. Two really good recommendations. <laughs> Those are two strong ones. We'll take them. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Margaret. Delighted to have you. Thanks, Margaret. Okay. Stay safe. We'll be right back with today's book trend. If you're a published author, you've probably seen your own book show up on weird sites for free. I know I have. You know, these are sites that allow anyone to download your book. And this is called ebook piracy, and it's against the law. But the issue has been that up till now, there ha- hasn't been a whole lot of cracking down on it. And, and when there's not a lot of cracking down, the offenders have very little uh, incentive to stop what they're doing. So today's trend is about the crackdown, and hopefully that will start to make a difference and maybe be the beginning of a trend to curtail these ebook piracy companies from giving away your books. Yeah, that's right. It was actually a big deal case that was settled at the end of last year where the U.S. court for the Western District of Washington awarded $7.8 million in statutory damages to 14 different plaintiffs, Amazon Publishing and Penguin Random House included, for copyright infringement. Um, and the offending party was a Ukraine-based ebook piracy ring. So the court ruled that they have to pay $150,000 per infringement, uh, and there were 52 infringed books. So that is quite a lot of money, and it will be interesting to see, you know, if this Ukraine-based ebook company actually ends up coughing up that much money. Yeah, well, either way, I hope my book is one of the 52 infringed books. <laughs> um, I'm going to plan to use that $150,000 on several new things. But um, yeah, do you, so I'm just curious, do you think we're going to see more of this, that other publishing companies will be bolstered by this win and go after piracy? Is it worth it? I mean, I hope so. Like, this has been a pet project of the Authors Guild, and they played a major role in the case, and so they should get giant kudos for a job well done. Uh, Twelve of the plaintiffs were actually Authors Guild members, and so represented by Authors Guild. Piracy has long been on my radar. You know, we are victims of it. I mean, you are too, but I obviously have a publishing company, and so I have over a thousand authors, and I get a lot of emails from people letting me know that they see their book available for free online, so it's super annoying. Uh, So much so that we have a section in our author handbook for what authors should do when this happens to them. Um, And also because it became a really important subject during my time at the Independent Book Publishers Association, where I sat on the board for six years and was on the advocacy committee. Because guess what? Lots and lots of IBPA members were also letting us know that they were very frustrated by the whole piracy thing, too. Not surprising. But all you can really do is tell an author what to do. And then it's just like whack-a-mole. You know, it's ridiculous for individual authors to go after these giant piracy rings. It just doesn't work. So that's where someone, you know, like the Authors Guild plays such an enormous role. Yeah, interesting. Um, It's interesting that it's so prevalent. Because if I, or when I've ever come across a free book download, I I don't download it. I'm, I'm super afraid of my computer getting a virus. But I guess when you're looking at it as a worldwide phenomena, there are people out there who are a lot less worried than me. And it's it's probably similar to, to Napster, which was found to be, you know, facilitating the legal transfer of copyrighted music. And uh, it went out of business as a result. That was such a big story. I'm sure people don't, you know, some people don't remember it now because it was about 20 years ago, but that was huge. Yeah. And all these years later, you know, there are so many companies just trying to figure out how to 
do piracy. I mean, it's just yeah. like the, the, the history of creativity, you know, is that your stuff is going to be out there for free and pirated. So, you know, but still these are wins for creatives uh, in general and, um, you know, no entity should be giving away your work, you know, for, for the hard work that you've done. So I do want to, again, congratulate the Authors Guild and the plaintiffs. And, um, you know, I do hope that this continues to be a trend that reduces that whole whack-a-mole thing and, and sends a message that artists have the right to earn money on their work. Yeah, well, I'm into that. And thank you to the listeners for tuning into another free episode of Right Minded. Please, please, <laughs> please. There's, there's no no copyright violations. Not pirated. Yeah, you can send <laughs> out this link and 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 post on social media as much as you want. We appreciate the attention. We appreciate increased listenership. So thank you so much, and we will see you next week with another great episode of Right Minded. Thank you.